Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Ladies and gentlemen, we have another interesting discussion tonight. Tonight, we are going to be talking about human origins, best explained by evolution or by creation. We have SFT, Standing for Truth, uh, um, one of our ordinaries here. And then we have Derek, uh, which will be uh, representing the evolution side. I want to kick it over to them first um, to give a brief introduction of themselves. But first, let me just say, if this is your first time at the channel, we really appreciate you being here, and uh, we want to make sure you feel welcome. Let's keep it civil in the uh, old live chat tonight, all right? Um, no slurs, first of all, okay? Let's, let's, um, let's make sure and be nice. And um, I think this is Derek's first time debating, so I know everybody's going to um, be there and, and, and not give him such a hard time. So... With that, uh, please hit the subscribe button if you haven't already and the like button if you like these types of discussions. All right. Uh, let's, start with, um, let's start with Derek. Uh, what, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, a couple minutes. Okay, how you doing? So, yeah, my name is Derek. Uh, people usually call me Ricky, so uh, you could just call me Ricky. Uh, first, I want to uh, thank uh, all you guys who helped set, who helped set this up. You uh, Converse for uh, moderating, standing for truth, for agreeing to uh, talk to me about this issue right here. And uh, James, uh, he he was instrumental uh, throughout the whole process, so he really got this thing going. So definitely appreciate him. Uh, so a little bit about me. I am a uh, student. I go to uh, State University of New York at Buffalo online. I'm halfway through a master's degree in science education, and I currently work full-time in healthcare management. So, you know, I know a little bit about science, but I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert, but I think I have, I, I know enough to uh, defend the evolutionary position. All right. I don't have a, a YouTube channel up, but uh, depending on how this thing turns out, I may be putting out a lot more content. So stay tuned. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I did want to say that uh, my forte in general is uh, secular morality, uh, skepticism, and uh, just the topic of science in general. Uh, I'm a fallibilistic atheist, 
meaning I'm pretty confident that all the gods of the major, the minor, the forgotten, and the, the yet unthought of religions, uh, that God almost certainly does not exist. Now, of course, I don't know that for certain, but um, I'm fairly confident that that God does not exist. Uh, ultimately, I am a uh, naturalist, uh, what is called a, a limitivistic a materialist, a, uh, a neo-determinist. So these are some of the philosophical uh, positions uh, that I hold. I'm also a secular humanist, which grounds my, uh, my personal moral philosophy. Now, I ultimately, I uh, don't believe in God because uh, I don't see uh, sufficient evidence for his existence. And I would just say, in general, uh, the need to use them to describe or to explain answers, I believe, is unnecessary. So that makes them superfluous. Uh, in my book, uh, Scientific Naturalism, I believe, is fully capable of explaining all of the answers to the questions that can be known. If it hasn't done so you know, yet, it will do so in time, the ones that can be known, of course. And uh, that includes the question of our origin and our ultimate uh, destination. So that's my position. That's, that's, that's where I stand. And, uh, you know, just to get uh, a little background into my worldview. All right. Thanks so much for that. Standing, you want to give our audience a little opening? Sure, yeah. Uh, I love being here on Modern Day Debate. Definitely not my first time. Uh, thanks for moderating tonight, Converse Contender. You always do a great job. Uh, Ricky, you seem like a really cool guy. I think this is going to be a good, respectful, cordial discussion. So human origins, I love this topic. Um, I've debated a number of topics. You can check out my channel uh, where I not only do debates, but I host and moderate uh, lots of debates as well. So if even if you don't agree with my position, but you just like watching these types of discussions, and uh, disagreements. Go like, subscribe, because we've got a lot more uh, good debates coming out in, in the future. So, uh, yeah, n enough for me. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. Looking forward to this. All right. Awesome. Thanks for both of you guys for that. Uh, um, now we're going to kick it over to uh, Standing again for his opening. We're going to have a format of 12 minutes apiece for opening statements just to kind of lay out the arguments. Then we're going to move into 45-minute open conversation. And then, of course, we will have a Q&A sec uh, section. So if you want to ask a question, you can tag me at Converse Contender. I'll be in the live chat. Or you can send a super chat, and I'll see that and push it to the top of the list. Um, and, yeah, if there's anything else you guys need, just tag me. And uh, standing, go ahead and kick it off for us. Awesome. Okay. Well, I got a timer here. I'm going to share screen. Uh, before I start the timer, though, um, like I said, I'm excited for this debate. Thanks for arranging it. We're here to, tonight to debate human origins created or evolved. In this 12-minute opening, I'm going to cover a, a number of lines of evidence that not only demonstrate a literal Adam and Eve of whom we have all descended from, but also refute ape-to-man evolution. So let's get right into it. Uh, before I start my timer, Converse, I just want to make sure the, the slides are up. Okay, I guess that they're up. Okay, let me start the timer here. So, okay, so we can uh, we can test the biblical claims of human origins to modern scientific data. Males all have a piece of DNA that we only get from our fathers. This is called our Y chromosome. The Y chromosome is passed on unbroken from father to son. From time to time, a mistake happens. And every time this happens, a new branch in the family tree is produced. If we simply look at all the branches in the world, they go back to a single person. 
This single person is not a chimpanzee, it's a man, and this man lived just a few thousand years ago. This would actually be Y chromosome Noah. We can do the exact same thing with mitochondrial DNA, which takes us right back to one female ancestor, mitochondrial Eve. Why is the data so consistent with the claims of Genesis? The empirical scientific data suggests that the human Y chromosome has only accumulated about 4,500 years worth of mutations. This has also led to testable predictions, as you can see here in, in my slide. Every single male Y chromosome on the planet is nearly identical. There is ex extraordinary little uh, variation in the Y chromosome. This is a strong indication that we share a very recent Y chromosomal ancestor. As you can see here by this secular paper, it turns out that when the chimpanzee Y chromosome was sequenced, it was discovered to be less than 70% like the human Y chromosome. The Y chromosome is uniparentally inherited DNA. It is essentially immune to recombination. The Y chromosome should have been vastly more similar between humans and chimpanzees. The researchers here were shocked. Since the empirical data suggests we have all descended essentially from Noah's family just 4,500 years ago, the critic may scoff at this by suggesting it is impossible to get 7 billion people today from just three couples 4,500 years ago. Getting 7 billion people in just a few thousand years is incredibly simple. All you would need to do is double the population every 150 years. We know human populations double much faster than 150 years. Evolutionists would have to invoke massive extinction events to account for the numbers of people on the planet today. Let us look at their model. If we assume their model and propose there were approximately a million Homo erectus on the planet for about a million years, and say their average generation time is about 20 years, this would be billions of dead bodies within the time frame experts in evolution propose Homo erectus existed. Where are all the dead bodies? As a matter of fact, we can fit all the fossils associated with Homo erectus in the trunk of a car. Where are the billions of dead bodies? It looks as if they never existed. This is because evolution has never occurred. Humans did not descend from an ape-like ancestor. Dr. Nathaniel Jensen has made incredibly specific predictions on mutation rates, including mutation rates in African people groups not yet known. Molecular clock studies, as you can see here, confirm Adam and Eve and biblical creation, and this is right from the secularists themselves. Evolutionists look to time dependency to explain away the data. If Derek here today disagrees with the Eve date derived from straightforward mitochondrial DNA coalescence equations, he needs to make testable predictions. When does the molecular clock speed up and slow down? Many other critics have looked to substitution rates, for example, to solve the problem that arises from pedigree-based mutation rate studies. Regardless of the rescue device employed, without testable predictions, of course, the rescue device is pseudoscience. All critics have failed to make accurate testable predictions on mitochondrial DNA and the Y chromosome. Can my opponent, Derek here, finally answer this problem? We shall see. What do we find in the hominin fossil record? Well, there are a couple different things going on, actually, that give the evolutionary community the impression that certain bones are transitional. One is that there are often artificial species that consist of a mixture of ape and human beings. The bones found at these sites are intermingled and incredibly fragmented. Um, follow along in the excerpts from this paper here by Eric Trinkhouse because uh, additionally what, what has been seen is that the bones claimed to be transitional show pathology consistent with small inbred tribes post-Babel. They also point out the fact that this is a common theme found in the fossil record.
There has been a recent paper that corroborates this claim. The author of this paper here, uh, Eric Trinkles, oftentimes uh, points out that the, the bones found to be old are also riddled with pathology and disease. The paper also points out the fact that this pathology cannot be due to chance. There's just too much. The people that are looking for intermediate forms will typically pick up the unique bones. These are the atypical bones they hope are evidence for ape to man's, uh, the ape to man story. We know these bones are the result of rapid entropic decay. As you can see, the commonly assumed pre-humans such as Homo naledi, Homo erectus, Homo floresiensis, which you might know as the hobbits, and Homo neanderthalensis were not pre-human. They were all members of the human species. The anomalous features often regarded as primitive or transitional were the result of accelerated genetic degeneration due to post-babel isolation. The ripple effect of this isolation, of course, would be prolonged inbreeding. Many of the people groups of Babel will have migrated to parts of the earth that were less than ideal. Isolation and inbreeding would lead to rapid genetic degeneration. This means that many of the troubling human fossils that evolutionary proponents say are pre-human are better realized to be devolution, morphological and genetic degeneration. We are told these fossils are evidence for evolution when in fact this is just more evidence for genetic entropy. The so-called primitive features that apologists of ape-to-man evolution have pointed out in Homo floresiensis, Erectus, Naledi, Neanderthal, Hadobergensis do not show that they were less than human. They were all fully human. They were made in the image of God. More correctly, they were human communities that were persistently inbred and were in genetic decline. Let's look at the Neanderthal for now. I got a ton of information on Neanderthal. Um, archaeological evidence suggests that Neanderthals had a relatively sophisticated culture. This, of course, speaks to intelligence. They also lived alongside anatomically modern humans and were even interfertile and interbred. We see Neanderthal genes in modern populations. The evidence for gene flow between Homo sapiens and Neanderthals is compelling. I don't think anybody denies this at this point. We find the classic Neanderthal characteristics and features in living people today. For example, if the skull cap of this boxer were discovered as an isolated bone, it is almost certain that a splitter would identify him as a separate species, when in fact that would be totally wrong. The genetic data suggests Neanderthals had a lot of mutations due to inbreeding and isolation. There's a recent paper here that talks about how humans and Neanderthals were less different than polar bears and brown bears, uh, June 3rd, 2020. Um, so the genetic data suggests Neanderthals had a lot of mutations, as I said, due to inbreeding and isolated uh, isolation, perfectly consistent with the post-Babel um, dispersion. So let me strongly emphasize the fact, though, that the absolute best evidence for human evolution has been overturned and is now in favor of the creation model of ancestry. There's a few papers here. You can see that the, there's no um, more clarity in the hominin fossil record. The more they find, the more confusing it, it gets. Also here, humans uh, missing link. This is talking about Sediba. Fossils may be jumble of of species. So these, these papers abound. Uh, clear, anatomically modern looking human footprints are found um, in layers where supposedly they shouldn't exist with the Australopithecines, the Laetoli footprints, footprints in Crete. So these papers are uh, coming about all the time. A baboon bone, um, I think for about 40 years, mistakenly attributed to uh, Lucy. Uh, 
So um, let's get right into some of the best evidence though. The entire uh, for evolution and kind of uh, overturn it, the entire junk DNA paradigm has been overturned and the chromosome two fusion has been overturned as you can see here. We know the fusion site is a functional element inside an RNA helicase long non-coding RNA gene. The area is far too generate degenerate and there is a lack of evidence for the so-called cryptic centromere. How does Derek here today address these problems? Evolutionists often point to homology, transitional forms, and nested hierarchies when trying to push their philosophical belief in universal ancestry. Well, we know that human engineers design in homologous patterns. Across the globe, we, sh we see shared designs and even shared blueprints. Nested hierarchical patterns, as is shown here, are simply characteristics of design and reflective of God's hierarchical nature. Even interesting mosaics, which some would refer to as transitional or expected based on the design model. The best examples of evolutionary change are either reductive, degrading to the function of the organism, or simply general organismal adaptation or epigenetic. I'd love to discuss epigenetics today here with Derek. There are no examples of evolutionary change necessary to take their fish to fishermen. Mutations are detrimental to life. And natural selection is a fine-tuning mechanism that keeps the species as strong as it can be. Epigenetics are not random. They occur in response to the environment through pre-existing mechanisms. The created heterozygosity model as well, which proposes that Adam and Eve would have been front-loaded with functional DNA differences, would make very specific predictions on DNA function. As you can see here by the number of papers coming right from the evolutionary community themselves, we have preliminary, preliminary evidence for genome-wide functionality. We've got uh, introns, the fun functional benefits of introns in genomes. Um, ENCODE itself has revealed that over 80% of our genome is actively transcribed into RNA, suggesting function. Can, can Derek refute this? So here's another one of my favorite papers, Moonlighting Proteins, Old Proteins Learning New Tricks. Um, as you can see here from the numerous, numerous papers, we know that ERVs and other classes of retrotransposons, even the ALUs, the ALUs influence alternative splicing, um, regulatory activities of transposable elements from conflicts to uh, benefits. If Derek wants to see more of these, I can certainly screen share them during the discussion. But these uh, retrotransposons accomplish many crucial functions in regulating gene expression. They help determine cell types, they help with development, and even assist in cell stress responses. This is another fascinating paper that goes over the uh, multifunctionality, the multi-layer uh, information systems in our genome. Redundancy of the genetic, genetic code enables translational pausing. We see forward-thinking mechanisms all throughout the genome. How does Derek uh, address these problems according to his worldview? So uh, what about also the functional orphan genes? that show independent ancestries. How does Derek explain this incredible class of taxonomically restricted and essential genes? These orphan genes defy universal ancestry. These genes are unique sets of coding sequences that are specific to particular organisms and they show no consistent hierarchy. The phylogenetic tree here on the screen um, is derived from hundreds of mitochondrial DNA variants that uh, form a tree-like pattern suggesting three major haplogroups, L, M, and N, that are perfectly consistent with Noah's three daughters-in-law. How does Derek address the, the data that's so consistent with a biblical creation model? I've just got uh, just under a minute here. 
couple more questions I'd like to ask is, uh, how does Derek explain the low genetic diversity in human beings? Genesis tells us God created two human beings, Adam and Eve. This was severely restrict genetic diversity, and this happens to be exactly what we find. Evolutionists were shocked by this, which is why they had to post hoc, ad hoc invent their fairy tale out of Africa population bottleneck. I'd like to go over genetic entropy as well. What type of mechanism can Derek present us with that can remove so many deleterious mutations that are pouring into our genetics? I've got five seconds here. Uh, this is as much as I can go over in, in a 12 minute period, but uh, I've got uh, four books here, um, two of which I've co-authored, two that I've written myself. Uh, you can certainly, if you find this interesting, you can uh, look into more of this yourself. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. All right. Thanks so much for that. Now we will kick it over to Ricky, who is uh, Derek, who's going by Ricky. So we're gonna we're gonna try and uh, fix that by calling him Ricky. And uh, yeah, thanks for being here. And um, and if you like, I said before, if you have a question, tag me in the chat at Converse Contender. All right, Ricky. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. So first, let me just say that this is a debate between two non-experts. Uh, from my understanding, uh, standing is uh, you're not a you're not a scientist, right? I, I do know that you you study it, and that that's awesome. But from my understanding, you did not get a form, you know, any formal scientific training. I guess you can if if that's not the case, you you will correct me uh, during the actual uh, open discussion. All right. So what I would recommend uh, that your listeners uh, do would be to actually listen to what the experts are saying. Right, especially if you don't, ha if you're a non-expert, you should be deferring to the experts because they had the training in the subject uh, and they know the topic uh, better than myself or Santa Petruf. Right. So, if you are a non-expert uh, and you already have a belief, what I suggest you do first is uh, read a college-level textbook because that has a non-controversial things in it. So, read that first. Uh, the next thing you want to do is you want to look at. Uh, popular scientific magazines so you can get a taste of uh, some of the cutting edge stuff, you know? And then after you do that, then you wanna actually delve into the actual journals, all right? So you wanna delve into your nature, you wanna delve into your science, you wanna delve into your, uh, in, in the various other cell, all right? So you wanna do that. And you should go about it progressively that way. So you'll have your foundation in place and then you can move on to learn more about the subject. All right, so I just wanted to open up with that. Hey Ricky, real quick. Uh, they're saying that they're um, if you could, they're they're saying that it's uh, kind of low on your volume. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. All right, right, here. Let me uh, speak a little more directly into the mic. Can you hear me a little better? Yeah, yeah, that's better. All right, all right. So I'm sure that uh, standing for truth would not readily accept the label as being anti-science. I'm pretty sure that he's value science and he values technology. All right. I'm pretty certain that. Uh, he would champion it, and if he was to get sick, he would go to an actual doctor and get uh, prescribed medication, and he would take that, right? Uh, technology demonstrates the veracity of the scientific method, right? It derives directly from that. Uh, you will be surprised, uh, no doubt, I would imagine, to learn that pharmacology derived directly from chemistry and evolutionary biology, and I say evolutionary biology because, as it was famously coined, or as it was famously said, Nothing in biology makes sense outside of the light of evolution. Nothing in biology makes sense. So we wouldn't have medication, we wouldn't have the technology of medication if not for evolutionary biology, right? So keep that in mind that this is what you're trying to tear down. 
all right? The, the thing that actually produces real actual uh, uh, technology, all right? So uh, standing for truth, he said a lot, and we'll go through those points in the open discussion. If uh, we can go through it one by one, that'd be great. Uh, but none of that disproves evolution, nor does it disprove human evolution, all right? Uh, two things, I know he mentioned a theory called the uh, heterozygosity model, right? Any good theory is going to have, you know, especially if it hopes to supplant a well-supported theory that was fruitful. It has to be, number one, falsifiable. I didn't hear where it was falsifiable. It has to make future testable predictions. I know it was claimed that it could have predicted something, but I didn't actually have any future testable predictions. And it has to explain everything that the former theory explained better. And I didn't hear any attempt to do that either. All right? So that's, that's point one. Point two is, at most, what Standard for Truth has uh, demonstrated was that some scientists got some things wrong. But that's nothing new. Scientists get things wrong all the time. Is cholesterol and eggs good for you or bad for you? One year is good, the next year is bad. Debates take place whenever you're dealing with data. Uh, so the best thing that you want to do is you want to uh, listen to, you want to let the experts duke it out and then reserve judgment until they get through it and a consensus is reached. Well, a consensus has already been reached on evolution. 95% of all American scientists accept evolution in every model, 95%. And this is in a scientific community that include one third of them who are theistic. So one third of all American scientists are theistic, believe in God, yet 95% of them accept the evolutionary model. And these are the experts. So they heard all the studies that Standard for Truth cited. And they know all of those and they know more, yet the things that he referenced did not turn the tide, it did not change their minds. And why is that, all right? Let's ask ourselves that question. All right, but more to the point, he didn't identify uh, where or who a potential intelligent designer could be, right? He hinted at God, but how is it that a God can be the creator, all right? What's the mechanism? Like, how, how, you know, how did he do it? Right. If you if you did not yet prove the existence of that intelligent agent, then that possible agent cannot be a, a viable candidate explanation for the origin of humanity. You have to prove the existence of God. If you if you haven't proven or even dem you don't even have to prove these. You have to demonstrate that a God exists and demonstrate the mechanism that he used to create uh, human beings. If you can't do that, he's not the candidate explanation. All right. So if you want to go with the Bible, you have to demonstrate that it's inerrant that all of it is true, and uh, I don't think uh, you're able to do that. I guess we'll find out. All right. Now, I'm sure that Standing for Truth is a genuine actor. Uh, I'm certain that he believes what he is saying. And in fact, I believe that in his mind, he is uh, trying to help people. He's trying to save people. He's probably trying to save me, and I appreciate that. I truly do. I'm not saying this facetiously. Just like my mom, my mom does the same thing, so I understand completely, and I definitely appreciate it. Unfortunately, if the God that you believe is the creator of uh, human beings don't exist, then you're not helping anyone, right? So you have to demonstrate his existence first, all right? And if you all, you know, and I, if you just had a belief that was benign and didn't affect anybody, then I wouldn't care. We live in a pluralistic society. I'm an American 
freedom of speech, freedom of thought, and everything else like that. I'm all, I'm all good with that, right? But if you are proposing something uh, that has the potential to influence the way science is taught in classrooms, uh, which could actually lead American children to be less able to compete against the children of uh, competing nations, then you're hurting America. That's not good. <laughs> That's a bad thing, right? Or if you are adding to a climate that makes people question science and make people question scientists and their, and their honesty and their integrity, then you're also not doing something that's in the best interest of the society. You're actually causing, uh, you know, leading to a cause of turmoil. All right. So I don't know. Uh, you seem to be a young earth creationist. I don't know if that is the case. But you seem to be a young earth creationist. I don't know if you're a flat earther. I don't know if you're an anti-vaxxer. I don't know if you're a climate change denier. Uh, I don't know about these things. I don't know if you're a coronavirus conspirator or a, uh, a 5G alarmist or et cetera, et cetera. But when you challenge the basic and overwhelmingly confirmed consensus of scientists to this most fundamental foundation to the entire field of biology, you're questioning the experts, the actual researchers and the experimenters as a layman. You're encouraging other non-experts to do the same. And this creates a climate which fuels an emerging techno-culture of misinformation, ironically enough, on a platform that would have been impossible if not for the understandings we have gained from those very same experts. We are science consumers in this country. We use computers, we use the internet, cell phones, uh, air conditioning. We are living in a natural world that was augmented and manipulated by experts who use the scientific method to understand unknown truths about the natural world. The same methods that physicists and engineers use to create the next uh, smartphone is the same methods evolutionary biologists and chemists use to, that will create the next cure for cancer and hopefully soon the vaccine of COVID-19. We are relying for them to do these things and eagerly await their next innovation. But we doubt that they know the natural world whenever they say something that contradicts one of our own unsupported, cherished beliefs that we cannot uh, justify. This is a clear challenge to the coherency of one's worldview and a gross display of cognitive dissonance, all right? To challenge the experts and to suggest, uh, to challenge the experts is to suggest that they are either stupid and don't understand the data when they have more of the data than any non-expert does, and that a layman can understand they feel better than they do. Either that, or the scientists all over the world are in, know that evolution is a farce and is engaged in the grandest of conspiracies for what exactly? Uh, the grandest of the conspiracies to corrupt our souls is, is that even though a third of all American scientists are theists, they appear to be complicit in a grand conspiracy to corrupt our souls. This makes no sense. All right. 95% of all American scientists accept evolution. 2% uh, uh, can claim to be a young earth creationist. That's it. The funny thing is that some of the studies that you cited, the authors of those studies are evolutionists. And they would be shocked to find out that their work is being used to try to disprove evolution. 
and that's the, and, and, and that's the worst part. That's, uh, that's like the, the grossest part of that. Uh, 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 because, I mean, just think about it. So you have all of these scientists who know these things, who actually go to, who see these uh, authors in the journals, and that's how they communicate, who actually go to the various conferences with these guys, who talk to them in person and communicate and interact with them. Yet somehow those same scientists, despite all the things you cited, remain unconvinced by the types of arguments that you're laying out. I feel compelled to stand with the experts. Ayo. All right. Thanks so much for that, Ricky. Uh, we're going to move into the open discussion period. Uh, let me just say, great jobs. First time uh, in a debate. Uh, Got to say, it was, a, it was a nice prepared opening. I'm going to kick it over to SFT to let him kick off the open discussion. Uh, tag me with any questions at Converse Contender in the live chat, and I'll ask them after this section. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks so much, Converse. Thank you for your uh, well-prepared opening there, Derek. I look forward to a respectful, cordial discussion. So uh, since this isn't a rebuttal period, I'm not going to address everything you said, but I'll just touch on one thing and we'll kind of go from there. Um, so I would agree that the gold standard of science is to make testable predictions. This is why I presented numerous predictions. I'll go over just two right now, for example. So the created heterozygosity model, which is what you touched on in your opening, so that's a fair place to start, uh, does make predictions. For example, on DNA function, which is why I provided numerous papers that we can go over uh, if you'd like to in my opening, as well as looking to the genome for mechanisms that would suggest built-in mechanisms, of course, that can lead to rapid change and adaptation. Therefore, I, I went over a, a number of papers regarding um, epigenetics because we know that we inherit specific modifications uh, in our DNA in the form of what's called chemical tags that turn out to influence how the genes express our, our physical traits. And these chemical tags are referred to as epigenetic markers, of course. So this is because they exist outside of the actual sequence of DNA. They're above and beyond the genes. Therefore, the, um, the adaptations, the responses seen regarding epigenetic changes are not random. They occur in response to the environment through complex mechanisms already in place to foster these changes. This requires forward thinking. So my question to you, and take as much time as you need, Derek, is what type of evolutionary process, because we know natural selection sees the short term, not the long term. But if these forward thinking mechanisms like redundancy and epigenetics requires long term, we know evolution doesn't see in the future, of course. So what type of evolutionary mechanisms can build that and evolve that which requires forward thinking like epigenetics for example uh, go ahead Derek take your time uh, genetic drift uh, so I, I do want to respond to that right quick because uh, the original claim made by scientists was that uh, a small portion of the human genome was actually protein coding and that actually bore out you know so I think I think they predicted like 10 percent it turned out to be 20 percent that was protein coding uh, they use the term junk DNA only to refer to the fact that uh, those other genes did not code for proteins. That's it. It, it. So it's like a misnomer. It's not like it was just absolute garbage. Now, the thing is with genetic drift is that uh, various mutations can accumulate. And as long as it's not uh, detrimental in a, in, in a natural environment, whether it would kill a species off, it would just collect. And at the time, while it may have no function, 
that doesn't mean that that stuff cannot then be, uh, become to be functional uh, in the future, depending on uh, various conditions. So if the body was able to then use this that usually had no function to begin with in some new way, then it's going to do that because it got to work with the stuff it has. So that's not a, that's not hard to explain. That doesn't disprove evolution. Um, and, and some good points there. I would agree that uh, you're right. Less than 2% of the DNA actually codes for proteins. But the thing is the rest now, all your non-coding areas of the genome turns out to be like a huge control panel with millions of switches that turn protein producing genes on or off. When it comes to epigenetics, we've got millions and millions of switches in our, in our genome that are just waiting to be turned on through environmental adaptation. That's why we see a lot of these so-called best beneficial mutations that evolutionists point to are now known to be epigenetic. And this is rapid adaptation, which is exactly what we'd expect to find uh, with the created heterozygosity hypothesis. Now, evolutionists, and I've got a paper here that I, that I can screen share, they did say that, yeah, we may fi find one or two you know, examples of regulatory functions found in the non-coding areas of our genome. But due to what we know about mutation accumulation, the genome can be no more than 10 to 20% functional. Because if deep time evolution is true, a lot of the genome should be the result of evolutionary leftovers, genomic fossils, ancient viral infections, right? Your ERVs, ALUs, pseudogenes, for example, and, and the junk DNA. So my question to you then, if we're predicting that the vast majority of the genome should be functional, but your side is saying that the vast majority should be non-functional, would that be a statement you'd agree with? Or if you can elaborate on that, go ahead. Uh, I would have to say, when did the heterozygosity model, uh, when was that formulated? The created heterozygosity model has been formulated for years. I can't remember exactly when it was formulated, but if uh, it's, it's derived because you were saying in your opening that uh, based on what I was saying, you know, it doesn't tell us what God may have created the universe and created humans, but th that's precisely erroneous because I made predictions regarding the mitochondrial DNA, the Y chromosome that we can take directly from Genesis. God mm -hmm. tells us that he created two people, Adam and Eve. Therefore, we can make retrodictions, retrodictions and predictions and see if it's consistent with the modern scientific data. That's why we have these pedigree-based studies that take us back just 6,000 years to a mitochondrial Eve, 4,500 years to a Y chromosome Adam. So I don't know exactly when it was formulated, but I think that's irrelevant because predictions and retrodictions are flowing from, from that model. But I don't want to leave that initial question first. Okay. How much of the genome would you say is, is functional, Derek? And take your time. Oh, I'm not an expert, so I can't say uh, how much of it should be functional. Uh, the question was, was this a prediction or a prosection? So that's why I asked, when was that uh, theory formulated? So if we learned and discovered that uh, uh, a significant portion of the uh, DNA had epigenetics in it that was functional, uh, and then someone came up with a this uh, heterogigosity model who says that, hey, our model could have predicted that, uh, you know, I could have said evolution could have predicted it. The question is, well, why hadn't you? Did you predict it or didn't you? So that was that was my question there. So I guess, uh, well, you know, I'll do my research and see when it came out to see if that was actually a prediction or a postdiction. If it's a postdiction, yeah, it, it's not science. No, that's a good question. It is a prediction. Uh, for example, I'm sharing screen right here. This is a paper by Dan Grar. So he's, um, he's, he's well known in the evolutionary community. He's, he's the one that said if ENCODE is right, 
then mm. evolution is wrong. Because are you familiar with the ENCODE project? Um, yeah, yeah, yes, I am. So, for example, they suggested through biochemical activity, biochemical means, that over 80% of the non-coding areas of our genome are, is transcribed in RNA suggesting function. Now, here's the thing. We don't know exactly what every single function, every single gene sequence is doing. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we are making predictions. This is not a post-diction because we, we've yet to uncover what the entire genome is, is doing. Therefore, we're saying that through more experiments, especially knockout experiments, which have extensive knockout experiments have not been done on humans of course it's unethical we will discover more and more function but here if you can see my screen mm -hmm. Dan Carr has concluded that mutational load considerations and this is what I said to you lead to the conclusion that the functional fraction within the human genome cannot exceed 15% the reason why he concludes this is because we know that we inherit 100 new mutations per person per generation in the germ cell lines of our nuclear DNA this isn't even talking about our mitochondrial DNA therefore the evolutionists need the majority of the genome to be junk. Therefore, those mutations that accumulate, they're absorbed by the junk areas, making them neutral. But if the majority of the genome is functional, that means these mutations are effectively neutral. This is what Kimura talked about, for example. So would you agree with Dan Grar here that the human genome, uh, functionality-wise, cannot exceed 15%? Uh, I have to look into it more. Uh, that could be the case. Is Dan Grar a uh, creationist or an evolutionist? Oh, no, no. He's he's uh, an evolutionist. He's an ardent militant evolutionist. He's he's fighting the ENCODE results, suggesting that no more of the genome can exceed 15 percent for the, the number of reasons that I um, that I set out. So here's what's funny, though. Here's what's funny. If this is your side saying this, if you see the screen, we've got paper upon paper, endogenous retroviruses, ALU, protein moonlighting, third position codon variation function, uh, what we know about embryological development. Does that, is it your position? And I, so I, I know you got to do some more research on it, which is fine. Therefore, would you say that it's a valid proposition for somebody like Dan Grar to say that all of that, all of that function, the introns, for example, which they assumed was junk. The epigenetics we see here, you know, none of these papers that I've showed you so far that you can see epigenetics and then bone remodeling, none of these are from creationist sources. Is it legit, do you think, to say that all of that, all of that is just squeezed so, so uh, immensely into just 15% of the genome? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, well, very clear. Uh, all of the experts have access to all those papers. But for some reason, it did not convince the experts, over one majority of them, uh, that the evolutionary model was false. So that means that uh, either that's not, uh, hasn't been substantiated, or that evidence isn't enough to discount evolution. Because if it was, then people would be jettisoning their belief in evolution, especially considering the fact that one third of all American scientists uh, believe in God. So it's, if that was something uh, that could justify their belief in their cherished beliefs, I'm pretty sure they, they'd be championing it. Uh, but unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be the case. So clearly there's something missing there. And standing, uh, we, we do have some people asking, um, how does the specific genetics um, relate to human origins? So maybe if you want to make that point as well. And then, and then let's give uh, Derek a chance to, um, to ask a question or two. Of course, yeah. So um, that's a good uh, couple points that, that he brought up. So, for example, the ENCODE researchers are uh, evolutionists. You know, they're doing their research without the um, w without the bias 
uh, evolutionary assumptions. And they're mm -hmm. the ones that uncovered that 80% of our genome is actively transcribed in RNA. Now, for example, this paper here, and I've debated uh, biologists on this. I've debated Dr. Stefan Frello. I've discussed this with Dr. Dan Stern Cardinal, and, and these guys are up to date on this stuff. And they would agree that, yeah, you know, the function, the functional capacity of the genome cannot exceed 15% due to what we know about genetic degeneration and mutation accumulation. Now, that's why Dan Grar said, if ENCODE is right, evolution is wrong. ENCODE is not a creationist research program. You get what I'm saying? Now, yeah, they're not questioning the overarching worldview of evolutionary theory because in peer-reviewed journals, of course, when it comes to the secularists, they can question little bits here and there of, of you know, the uh, details of the theory, but not the overarching theory. But the point is, the, D, the, the genetic related data, the, the functional data is consistent with, because you asked me to explain how it's consistent with uh, human origins from my perspective, we've suggested that God has front loaded Adam and Eve, this would apply universally to the kinds where we're talking about humans, with these functional DNA elements. DNA differences. Therefore, we would predict that the vast majority of the genome is functional. And yet this is what we're seeing. And this isn't a post-diction, retrodiction. This is literally a, um, a, a prediction that evolutionists aren't making because they can't make those types of predictions because the genome, they have to say, is no more than 15% Functional. Plus, I've got these pedigree-based studies here that, that show us uh, literal Adam and Eve. I can go to those. Uh, yeah, take your time. I know I threw a lot at you there, so why don't you – what are your thoughts on that? Well, it just seems to be a debate between experts, uh, evolutionists on both sides. And clearly, neither one uh, of the sides is abandoning evolution, so I don't see how that would count as evidence against evolution. Uh, so I would just say that uh, I would uh, wait until uh, a consensus is reached on the matter, and I'll go with that. I seriously doubt that consensus would contradict evolution or say that evolution is false. It could say that some evolutionists uh, got, the, got the question or got the answer wrong, but they was just proven wrong by some other group of evolutionists. So I don't see how that would disprove evolution. Uh, now, I noticed in your slides that you put up a picture uh, pertaining to a wide chromosomal atom that they right. back 4,500 years ago, it, that claim. Now, uh, Spencer Wells, who, who first pro, uh, proposed looking at the genetic clock for the Y chromosome, uh, put it back to 60,000 years ago. And new studies push that back to over 200,000 years and even 380,000 years. Uh, but also in another slide, when it made reference, and this is a slide that you presented, when it referenced mitochondrial Eve, it said that uh, her, uh, her uh, mitochondria uh, the, where all of us got our mitochondria from, that that dates back from uh, 100,000 to 200,000 years. So if mitochondrial Eve in your own slides uh, is dated back to 100,000 to 200,000 years ago, yet your Y chromosomal atom dates back only 4,500 years, which is even less than the biblical account because when they did the begots and added up the begots, the, the best, uh, the best uh, uh, time frame for when the first human beings is this according to the biblical model was like 6006 BCE or something like that so how does that work how is it possible that a woman uh, uh, Eve who, who was supposed to have came from Adam's rib lived uh, uh, like 100 to 195,000 years uh, before Adam so, uh, so I, I was confused by that of course the, the bottleneck does explain why uh, much of our genetics are similar right and then uh, 
And, you know, there's many reasons for why a bottleneck would occur. Uh, the fact is that we developed during a time of the ice age. So there was a lot of uh, uh, strife that was going along in the environment. So that's not surprising. Uh, a lot of species went through uh, bottlenecks. So, so. Yeah, I, I can address that if you like. Um, so I'm just going to share screen just because I, I like to have the papers right there that, that we can look at. So I'm not sure if, if Converse has to approve of that or something or anything. So um, regarding the pedigree based studies when it comes to the Y chromosome and the mitochondrial DNA. OK, now there's two different methods. You've got the phylogeny method. You've got the empirical method where we actually look at observed mutation rates that the FBI themselves have adopted. So, for example, here's just a couple papers where it talks about using our empirical rate to calibrate the mitochondrial DNA molecular clock will result in an age of the mitochondrial DNA, most recent common ancestor of only 6,500 years. Now, this is based, they're saying it here, the empirical rate. This is what we observe. Therefore, we take it back. It just takes us to uh, 4,500 years without calibrating, okay, without assuming the geological column, deep time evolutionary history. Y chromosome mutation rate takes us right back because the Y chromosome mutates fast, actually. So it takes us right back to 4,500 years, which would be uh, Y chromosome no, of course. The mitochondrial DNA takes us back 6,500 years. Now, the question is, do we need to calibrate the empirical uh, observations and the empirical rate with the deep time evolutionary assumptions. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is where the testable predictions come into play. And this is what I covered in in, in my opening. We've got Harvard graduate uh, Dr. Nathaniel Jensen, who's made predictions. He said, OK, I'm, I'm so confident with this empirical rate that mitochondrial DNA only takes us back 6,500 years that I'm going to look at non or I'm going to look at African people groups, for example, the Khoisan peoples, where we don't know their mutation rate yet. But I'm so confident, he said, says that this empirical rate is legit, then I'm going to make predictions on the rate at these people groups where we don't even know the rate yet. So therefore, if it comes to testable predictions, Derek, my question would be, you can look to the phylogeny method and you can calibrate these dates all you want, but do you have any testable predictions that can flow from that explanation, Derek? Uh, go ahead and you can see these papers here too. Certainly, certainly. All right, now, for one thing, because I, I did mention that in one of your earlier slides, you actually had uh, mitochondrial Eve going back 100 to 200,000 years. So you probably have to scroll up so you can work, so you so we can see uh, right. the slide that you're working. So what I'm saying- Right here, right, right here, right here. I'm yeah, just gonna right go, there, to, go down. No, but, but remember, remember, yeah. the most recent common ancestor of all present day humans lived just a few thousand years ago in these models. This is, I just explained it. Right. This is the empirical rate. Now, of course, these are not evolutionists. I'm not saying these are young earth creationists. Therefore, right. now they're not assuming young earth creation. So now they're gonna calibrate it with mm -hmm. the geologic column. But guess what? The point in question when it comes to creationists and evolutionists is the geologic column. Therefore, we're happy with the empirical rate, which by the way, the FBI has adopted. Yet right. it's good enough for the FBI, but it's not good enough for the evolutionists. That's why I'm asking you a specific question. If the phylogeny method is what we need to look to, what types of testable predictions on substitution rates, if you want that, or somatic mutations or time dependency, can you make for me to consider your explanation? Go ahead. Well, right quick before I address that, uh, is any of these studies suggesting that no human beings existed before that? If they're saying that all modern human beings can trace their ancestry back 4,500 years, which seems very unlikely, especially considering the fact that we have evidence that uh, all, uh, the people in Australia uh, was over there uh, between 60,000 and 80,000 years ago. 
uh, uh, Aborigines who was, you know, didn't come back into contact with, uh, who didn't come into contact with the West until like the 1800s. So the idea that uh, we can all trace it back to 4,500 years seems preposterous and absurd, especially considering the fact, it, it, and I know they're not making a claim that humans didn't exist before then because we actually have, uh, we know that human beings were making beer uh, before then. We actually have the residue of the fermentation process in pots uh, made by uh, civilizations that was older than 6,500 years ago. Uh, we know that the Neolithic period uh, took place around 10,000 BCE, so people were already farming and everything else like that. So that's just flies in the face of overwhelming evidence. So that so how can you if, how how can you possibly uh, consider that to be evidence of anything? that support the, the biblical narrative. It seems to me like you're, you're cherry picking your, your, your studies here and you're getting it from non-reputable sources, I'm sorry. Well, and, and good questions. Well, these were these uh, sources are actually like T.J. Parsons, for example. Uh, you know, the, the Nature. You know, these are from reputable sources. Now, I'm agreeing that they do end up calibrating the date. They say that they look for the to natural selection substitution rates. They look to a number of uh, ways to make the empirical rate, which takes uh, even the um, Y chromosome Noah just back within you know six thousand years. They calibrate it with indirect lines of evidence. So I always point out that it's, it's when it comes to the question of ancestry, human origins, genetics. Genetics is what's inherited sperm and egg, not a rock, not a piece mm -hmm. of pottery, not geography. These are all direct measurements. Therefore, we can look right into the genetics and we can see that the genetics only reflects about 6,000 years worth of mutations and uh, the, the muta mutation rate itself confirms this. When you look to indirect lines of, of um, measurements, for example, like pottery or dating methods, these are based on a whole bunch of assumptions. Now, when you actually look to written records, that only takes us back about 4,500 years. So all your direct measurements, genetics, written records, those take us back just about 6,000 years. Therefore, and I understand your points, I'm pointing out that those are based on assumptions, but you still haven't answered the, uh, I got to point out, Derek, I don't think you answered the epigenetic question either when it comes to forward thinking mechanisms in, in our genetic. genetic. Because genetic if, are you implying that evolutionary processes have a mind to evolve that which is built into the genome, just waiting for a switch to turn it on and boom, rapid adaptation. Like I, I kind of let you, I think I let you dodge that one. If you want to answer that one again, but I'm really just looking for a testable prediction on mitochondrial DNA and Y chromosome. If you want to try and answer both and I'll just sit back and, and listen, take your time, Derek. Okay. I, I don't have to make the prediction. Scientists make predictions all the time. So all you have to do is just learn the science and you learn about all the predictions that's being made and being confirmed. So millions of predictions, uh, biology is fundamentally grounding in evolution. As I stated, nothing in biology makes sense outside of the light of evolution. So in the lab every single day, millions, well, I don't know millions, but thousands and thousands of scientists are confirming evolution every single day. All right, so that's number one. Number two, genetic drift, I already explained, uh, where, uh, Mutations that have no function can accumulate, and when conditions change, they can turn out to actually have a function. The, the body is going to use whatever material it has, and if it leads to some type of uh, selective advantage, it's going, to take, it's going to use this. As a matter of fact, this is actually called uh, the uh, zero-force law uh, evolution. So we have a law in evolution that accounts for uh, 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 um, uh, negative mutations that occur and accumulate. It actually leads to evolutionary change over time. 
even when a natural selective force or a destructive uh, uh, selective force isn't present. So, uh, you know, that was already predicted by evolution. Uh, they, they already uh, compiled a law. It's called the zero force law. You can just Google it. Um, okay, and, and, and good points there. My, my only issue with that is, is the fact that we would all agree that natural selection works in the short term and not the long term. So when we look at DNA repair mechanisms, when we look at epigenetics, when we look at redundancy, it's analogous to that spare tire that you have in your car. It may appear redundant, for example, but it, it, it's definitely absolutely necessary when you get a flat tire, for example. Now, these non-random epigenetic changes would imply that evolutionary processes have minds because these organisms do appear to have complex inbuilt mechanisms that allow, and we can see this in a number of papers, for adaptations to future environmental challenges. This all appears to be built-in capacity of adaptation. Now, genetic drift, evolutionary processes that, uh, for example, you're saying the mutations build up, they're neutral, and eventually they're called upon for um, adaptive purposes. The thing is, these switches, these millions and millions of switches are just sitting there in the genomes, waiting to be turned on rapidly through environmental pressures and conditions. So my only object, my, my biggest objection to that is your explanation, although I understand it, it seems to suggest that these evolutionary processes have a mind when in fact, natural selection mutations, they can't see the future, but these mechanisms imply foresight, forward thinking, for example. Uh, go ahead. Okay, yeah, so uh, uh, number one is a number of, uh, no, first and foremost, evolution is a fact, so we observe evolution take place. Uh, there's a number of theories of evolution, right? So natural selection is the predominant one, and it usually leads to the most uh, cases of speciation, and, and that tends to be a little short-term, but genetic drift is a long-term process, and that's another evolutionary theory, and they all work in, in, in concert together. Punctuated equilibrium is another one that's even shorter, uh, then um, natural selection is usually uh, preceded by some type of catastrophic event, right? So that works uh, in conjunction uh, with uh, evolution, works in conjunction with natural selection. The Pregambian explosion, of course, is, uh, is a testament of that. Uh, the fact that the dinosaurs were wiped out 65,000 years ago, that was a catastrophic event that actually uh, led to the rise in mammals, uh, which we are. So before that, we probably still would be like shrew-like creatures uh, scurrying around the, the forest floor somewhere. So, uh, and that, so that's an example of punctuated equilibrium. So you can't just reference natural selection, just point to that. You have to take in the, the neo-Darwinist position that incorporates all the various uh, theories of evolution and combine they all explain everything you're asking, you know, everything you're asking about. All right, and, and one okay. more thing, uh, we're having some people asking, uh, how the genetics uh, argument is um, related to human origins. Maybe you can just explain that uh, before you answer that question. Well, uh, SFT. Oh, well real, real quick, one of the things he mentioned when it came to gene was the, uh, uh, the chromosome 2 uh, and how, of course, the scientists earlier said that that was the link. Because as we all know, uh, uh, chimpanzees are closest to our living relatives as accounted for in genes. Uh, which was, of course, predicted before uh, we even knew what genes was. So, of course, Charles Darwin uh, famously uh, uh, made the link between uh, African apes and modern humans. He had no mechanism for how heritability could take place. Uh, it, that wasn't discovered until Gregor Mendel in genetics, uh, who was actually a monk, uh, decades and decades later. 
So, and that actually turned out to be one of the greatest predictions uh, of all time, that a, her a heritable mechanism was there. And then even when Greg Mendel came up with the idea of uh, genetics, uh, the mechanism still wasn't there until uh, Francis Crick and Jane Watson came uh, with the uh, double helix model of, of DNA. So all of these things are predictions that were made by Charles Darwin back in the 1800s that came true, and these is major. So whatever theory that you're going to have is going to have to explain how was Charles Darwin able to make those predictions and how your model will explain that better. And I don't think you were able to do that. Now, when it came to the, 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 uh, the different uh, chromosomes in um, chimps and apes, uh, we demonstrated based on the, uh, where you see telomeres actually in the middle of a chromosome that's not supposed to be there. So we know that that fused, and it didn't even fully fuse yet, because usually the remnants of that uh, basically erases itself over a period of time. That means that the ancestors we share with apes is actually fairly recent. Uh, but you said, but you don't uh, doubt uh, microevolution in, in, in what you said, kinds. Now, kinds isn't recognized as science, but you say you don't doubt microevolution in kinds? Well, uh, you, you said a lot there, and, and I'm not one to interrupt when someone's uh, talking. So let me just try and address all the points. Um, so, for example, when it comes to testable predictions, like you were saying that uh, Darwin has made, that's why I've provided a number of them regarding the Y chromosome, the mitochondrial DNA, speciation rates, mutation rates, DNA function, a uh, function in the endogenous retroviruses, the retrotransposon pseudogenes, for example. Uh, we've, we, we've touched on those extensively, so we can move on a little bit. Uh, when it comes to evolution, uh, yeah, no, nobody denies evolution. It depends on your definition of evolution. I would define a biological evolution as a change in allele frequency and populations over time or over generations. So those micro, micro evolutionary variations, yeah, I have, I have no issue with that. Now, the problem is if you want to take your single celled like ancestor billions of years ago into something like a whale or a human or an ape today, through incremental changes, of course, I understand that there's uh, different types of um, explanations for the change punctuated equilibrium of course but overall um, evolutionists would explain all DNA differences all genetic diversity as a result of mutations over time when what we talked about earlier the created heterozygosity hypothesis we'd suggest the opposite that the majority of those DNA differences are created units of DNA function now here's the thing if you're gonna claim that the uh, universal common descent version of evolution, not just a change in allele frequencies and populations over time, is scientific. Here's the issue. Where's the type of change necessary for that large-scale type of evolution? Because all the examples, as I've showed in, in my opening, of the so-called beneficial mutations have been shown to either be a loss of information, okay, so they're degrading to the function of the organism, or general organismal adaptation, epigenetics, which we've touched on um, a lot. So we don't have to go back into that. But Oftentimes, a mutation will inactivate a pre-existing regulatory system leading to an advantage, okay, and a benefit. But this is not actually taking things forward. So the fact is there's a trend that we see. Evolutionists oftentimes want to look to the phenotype. When we got to get down under the hood and look at the genotype. And what we see is that these changes, these so-called benefits are the result of reduction, breaking down pre-existing systems for adaptive purposes, um, for example, uh, leading to the degradation of 
the organism, like bacteria, they'll lose genes short term for um, adaptive purposes, but it's long term degeneration. So how are those types of mechanisms and changes going to take a single cell like ancestor billions of years ago into all the complex life forms that we see today? Because where did this pre-existing information and these pre-existing systems come from to be able to be broken down in the first place? If you want to answer those questions, then we can touch on the chromosome two fusion, because I, I hear what you're saying about the chromosome two, but I don't want to throw too much at you just yet. So if you want to address those, I'm happy to move to the, to the fusion. Go ahead. Uh, All right, uh, right before that you do that, Ricky, um, let me just say, um, we're at an hour and five minutes now. So just to leave enough time, what I'm going to do is let's go for about five more minutes or so on this open discussion. And then, um, I'll give both of you about three minutes apiece to, uh, kind of wrap it up and tell us your conclusions um, concluding thoughts and then we'll go to Q&A so just about another five minutes of open discussion perfect okay, perfect. okay. Uh, so one thing uh, is often looked at evolution as moving uh, progressively towards some sort of end or goal and that's the wrong way to look at it the only thing that uh, we know accumulates in evolution is complexity that's it also, what we cannot do is look at uh, the number of chromosomes or, or the number of genes or anything else like that and try to draw some overarching conclusions. Uh, if we look at, um, if, the if we take this away from human beings and we look at other animals and other species and stuff like that, it it's clear uh, that the number of chromosomes that you have or how many uh, copies you have is meaningless. If we look at a zebra, for example, there's three different species of zebra right? Amongst zebras, uh, one species has around 34 chromosomes and a, a, another species has over 68 chromosomes or something like that. So like twice as many chromosomes, they look exactly the same. They, 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 they do the same thing and neither one of them seem to be deficient in any type of way. And this is the same thing. We can even look at the difference between uh, a, a horse and a donkey. In the case of a horse, I think it has 48 chromosomes, the donkey has 46 chromosomes, all right? And we're more closely related to chimpanzees than a horse is to a donkey, all right? So it, it, it's easy to try to read things into the uh, genetics, especially if you don't necessarily have formal training uh, to become a geneticist. So you, I mean, you can't make these the broad assertions unless you, you, you know, you study the, you know, the, the topic, you know, all the intricacies of it, but you can't make these broad uh, claims uh, based on limited information. You, you, you see what I'm saying? So it's easy for a single cell organism to accumulate uh, uh, genes that has no function and for it to layer have function over time whenever any type of uh, selective pressure is applied to it. Uh, and it's very easy to see. I mean, if we look at transitional species, if you look at the platypus, here you have is a mammal that lays eggs, right? You have a mammal that lays eggs that was able to survive for eons. Clearly, it is more closely related to the transitional species that gave rise to both uh, uh, birds and placental mammals, right? And not only placental mammals, because you also have the, uh, the marsupial mammals too. So, we, we even see in the animal kingdom how a, a, a common ancestor uh, who could have features, uh, on, you know, before then unheard of can lead to two different branches, one egg laying and one uh, placental. Because you have an example of a mammal that actually lays eggs. You have some snakes that give birth to a lot of young, you have some snakes that, that lays eggs. You see what I'm saying? 
Right. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm just saying that you have natural examples, even contemporary, that could shed light on how uh, the evolutionary process took place and how various species transitioned. Okay, and and, uh, great point. So you you discuss how evolution doesn't really have a a direction. It doesn't have a mind, as we talked about earlier, Um, as well as, uh, well, I guess we're we're still, um, I'm going to touch on the chromosome two fusion in a second, but I don't want to get too far past this one. You brought up the platypus as well. Uh, Here's here's the issue. Yeah, there's not, um, you know, a strict direction, of course, but if you're going to go billions of years ago to that single-celled-like ancestor to a um, multi-celled-like ancestor to a fish, an amphibian, a reptile, a bird, a monkey, a man, for example, you know, there's going to be some types of novelties and uh, information adding mutations that that are required but as i talked about earlier all we see is general organismal adaptation epigenetic or the fact that organisms are losing information and breaking down pre-existing systems for adaptive purposes which is all and well this is short-term adaptation and oftentimes long-term degeneration i like talking about just like richard dawkins talks a lot about the lensky experiment the long-term experiment on bacteria in his book uh, the greatest show on earth because the evolutionists will oftentimes purport that this is demonstrated true novelty but even in that experiment what we've observed is reductive evolution so Lenski he's attempted to identify mechanisms in the genome that can provide the necessary evidence for this type of large-scale evolution we're talking about well what they're finding out most of the time in this experiment is the bacteria as I talked about earlier they're knocking out pre-existing genes and pre-existing functional systems for the Um, for the purposes of short-term adaptation. But overall, this is genetic degeneration. Nothing new has been observed to be added to the genome leading to a novel phenotype. That's why the question still remains, where did these genes come from that are being knocked out in the first place? So I find evolutionists, you know, they're constantly offering these types of examples. And what I would say is is kind of a desperate attempt to demonstrate that uh, pond scum to people type evolution. One analogy I want to make real quick uh, for the audience sake is let us pretend we wanted to make the dining room in our homes larger. And therefore we decided to do this by knocking out the interior wall. We've done this recently in our house. Therefore I like using this analogy. Would we then say that we built the house by knocking down walls? Of course not. Evolutionists, as I said earlier, they're looking at the phenotype when they need to look at the genotype. Yes, we got a bigger room by knocking out a pre-existing wall, but this is not how we built the wall, and this is not how we built the house. So therefore, when it comes to the genetics, how did these organisms get these genes? How did the organisms get these true novelty? So I think that's where the bigger problem lies when it comes to uh, universal common Ancestry. I'm not sure if we're going to have enough time to discuss chromosome two fusion. We may have to just in our closings, but uh, go ahead, Derek. And how much time do we have left there, Converse? Um, well, yeah, we need to just wrap it up as soon as possible. Do you, do you want to just take a minute to respond to that real quick? I could take less than that right quick. Okay. Uh, so we know that uh, gene replication happens. Uh, we, we know that, I mean, it, it, even if you look at like some fruit and stuff like that, I think a banana has like 120 genes or something, I mean, uh, chromosomes or something like that. Uh, so gene, uh, gene duplication and replication happens. 
Uh, so that's the material that could be broken down further. And then so it, it's no just a progression in the number of uh, uh, genes or no steady decline in the number of genes or anything else like that. Uh, the evolutionary process is messy. Sometimes it adds genes. Sometimes genes are taken away. Sometimes adding genes is bad. Sometimes uh, taking genes away is bad. Sometimes adding them is good. Sometimes taking away is good. So it all depends on the, the, the circumstances. All right. Thanks so much. Uh, standing. Let's uh, give you three minutes to give your conclusion, concluding thoughts. That way we can give uh, Ricky the uh, last word. Okay, awesome. Let me hear. I'll, I'll put my timer as well, three minutes. Yeah, it's been a great discussion. I've really enjoyed it. flew by with, with Ricky. I'd be okay with another um, discussion on this, to be honest with you. Uh, definitely, I feel like I've, I've provided more than enough evidence in my opening being corroborated by a number of papers. Unfortunately, we didn't really get much time to talk about the hominin fossil record and the clear evidence for rapid accelerated genetic degeneration that, that we see that explains the anomalous and so-called primitive features perfectly consistent with the uh, out of Middle East theory. Uh, he says that there are humans, you know, um, living through indirect means. The question is though, when we look to their supposed out of Africa theory, we know that uh, the evolution explained the vast majority of DNA differences as a result of mutations over time. Now, I did ask some questions regarding orphan genes, regarding uh, the chromosome 2 fusion itself, actually, uh, which we can maybe get into uh, during the next debate. But the thing is, when you have all these mutations accumulating in, say, the Australopithecines, Homo erectus, so by the time you get to this bottleneck that the evolutionists invoke to explain the low genetic diversity in human beings, as well as the mitochondrial DNA and the Y chromosome, which is all perfectly consistent with the biblical creation model and a literal Adam and Eve, this bottleneck was extended by the own admission of the, uh, the evolutionists. This means that all of these mutations that have been accumulated and they're hiding in recessive form, they are now manifested and they lead to accelerated genetic degeneration. So I've asked this question to, to numerous evolutionists, you know, how is this even remotely feasible? This population of two to 10,000 that he says existed prior to the genetic data that suggests that um, the mitochondrial ancestor goes back 6,000, the Y chromosome ancestor goes back 4,500 years. There's no evidence for other groups of people prior to this in, in the geological column. Written records go back just 4,500 years. So how is it even remotely feasible when this population, hypothetical population, would have been so severely um, genetically damaged? When it comes to the chromosome 2 fusion, the reputed fusion site, as I talked about in the opening, is overlapped by a functional gene. The so-called fusion site's not actually a fusion site at all. It's a functional component of that DDX11L2 gene. Um, the telomeres he talked about, for example, uh, the area is, is far too degenerate. And those sequences that we can see there, for example, they're found all throughout the genome involved in functional roles in the genome. So it's not just um, evidence and uh, observed in that area, for example. There's also lack of evidence for cryptic centromere. And the satellite DNA problem, for example, chimps have very distinctive and very large satellite sequences at the ends of their chromosomes, but absent in man. And these large ape-specific satellite sequences should be seen flanking the reputed fusion site on both sides. But guess what? They're not there. My time's up, but if you want to see more of a detailed discussion on chromosome 2 fusion, I've, I've debated Katsu Gibbon for half an hour. I've had full debates on chromosome 2 fusion. Love that topic. If he wants to in his closing, he can try and address those issues with the cryptic centromere 
the telomere site being degenerate and then the function observed with that area of the reputed fusion site. So once again, thanks so much. It's been a great debate and Ricky, you've been respectful. So thanks so much. All right. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, we'll kick it over to Ricky for his closing uh, thoughts here. Okay, yeah, definitely. It was a pleasure. Uh, again, I just want to, you know, just show my appreciation to you guys for letting me get a chance to speak. Uh, I'm going to say again that uh, none of this disproves evolution. These seem to be debates between evolutionists. Uh, I'll let the experts duke it out. I'll reserve judgment until a consensus is reached. As far as the question of evolution, the consensus has already been reached. So in order to overturn that, you have to overturn the consensus. Uh, good luck. Now, uh, some of the things that we did not discuss was uh, uh, radiometric dating, so how we can date various fossils. Uh, we know that the further we go back in time, the more archaic the, the uh, fossil remains of uh, the humans we find. Uh, and this is consistent with the evolutionary picture of the universe. I mean, excuse me, uh, evolutionary uh, picture of uh, human origins and uh, the evolutionary picture of uh, the, uh, the progression of life from, uh, uh, from common ancestry. All right, so all of that is consistent. Uh, I was going to say uh, the idea that human beings aren't older than uh, 6,500 years ago is um, that's just not in keeping with an overwhelming amount of science from archaeology, paleo uh, uh, paleontology, and everything else like that. Uh, like I said, we have evidence of civilizations that date back uh, much older than that. Uh, the oldest human remains that we was able to date back to 200,000 years ago in uh, the Ethiopian region. So we do know that uh, the oldest anatomically modern humans uh, date back there. Uh, we also can date back uh, when uh, we split uh, from the, our closest living relative, you know, our closest uh, our common ancestor with the uh, with chimpanzees, and that was back seven million years ago. And we could date it using radiometric dating. We didn't get into that topic. We probably should have, but uh, that would be that would have been informative. So we have overwhelming evidence that uh, human beings predate uh, the biblical narrative. Now, the only reason anybody would champion the biblical narrative uh, is if they actually take the Bible to be literal. But if you look at the story of Genesis, you would have to look at everything that's included in the story. Apparently, Adam was first. Eve came from the rib. All studies suggest that mitochondrial Eve predates Y chromosomal Adam. And of course, no scientist says that other human beings weren't living at the time. So these all studies are taken out of context. So that's one. Number two, if you look at the Genesis story, not only is there talk about Adam and Eve in it, and there's two contradictory tales. One In one case, they were actually created together. In another case, Adam was made first, and then Eve came from the rib. But you have stories of uh, the uh, magical tree, talking snakes, uh, even if you go to Genesis 3, chapter 24, they even talk about a cherubim flying around with a flaming sword protecting the tree of life. Uh, this is a flying baby with wings and a flaming sword. I mean, you can't possibly take that literal. It, clearly, this is uh, the attempt of ancient man trying to explain their origins when they did not have a scientific understanding. So I can't possibly take that to be uh, literally true. Uh, and, and I would recommend that you guys read the story of Genesis again and see if that actually uh, should be taken literally. I seriously doubt you would. Uh, I'll leave it at that. All right. Thanks so much for that. We will kick it over to the Q&A section. All right. Um, this, man, this is, a lot e much, uh, this is a lot easier than last night. <laughs> you heard your paycheck this week, Converse. <laughs> well, I don't get paychecks, so no, I'm just kidding. All right, so our first super chat is from Andrew Kroll, $2. says, 
Nice to see a a fellow Buffalonian unbeliever. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I'm really from New York City, but I, I <laughs> but I, I wasn't in, in, in Buffalo for a little while. All right, Mike Billers, two dollars says at Derek, quit using your wizard words. <laughs> I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, well, I, I actually think uh, Standing for Truth has has some some more wizard words. Uh, his vocabulary, when it comes, is <laughs> pretty extensive. <laughs> Very impressive. <laughs> That's a good debate. And I was going to say for your closing, yeah, you, you've been extremely uh, cordial to, to talk to, flew by. I'd be happy with another debate if you'd like where we can focus on dating methods and things of that sort. Awesome. Logical, plausible, probable says, D, is it your position that you don't have the IQ to question a PhD or reach a conclusion through analysis? If so, congratulations on being told how to think. Okay, okay. Uh, when it comes to certain topics, you have to defer to the experts. Now, everybody has the ability to go to school and actually learn these things. Uh, but if you're not in the field, if you're not doing the research, if you're not doing the experiments, if you're not producing the technologies for you to then turn around and say that you know more than the people who are, ap- who are able to apply their knowledge to actually create life-saving technologies, then I, I, I think you need to humble yourself a little bit, man. Right. If I could say if I could say one really, really quick thing, okay. um, and it's his question, so he gets the last word if he'd like. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a number of uh, PhDs that have rejected um, – evolution, a universal common descent, I should say. Uh, they're not all young earth creation scientists. You can look to the Discovery Institute. You can look to people like Stephen Mayer, of course. And um, the thing is, when you look to these papers, for example, I got a number of papers here on protein moonlighting, translational pausing, ERVs. The problem is the evolutionists that are writing them, they can't read between the lines. Therefore, you'll find in the discussion portion where they're trying to explain the data, they'll say things like co-option with no real evidence, orphan genes, look to de novo gene synthesis for example so they can't question the paradigm itself because they can't and then when you got other people that are biased towards evolution they can't read these papers and then read between the lines but someone like myself and millions of others we can read those papers and see wow you know these endogenous retroviruses for example are shown to be extremely functional and then their explanation in the same paper is co-option with no real observable evidence so you need to look to these papers uh, objectively you can't just automatically believe the evolutionary story because oftentimes there can be different interpretations so that's all i gotta say there uh, and I, let me just follow yeah, up right quick ahead. um 83 of the american public believes in god uh a third of american scientists believes in god uh you made it sound like there's some sort of uh Man, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say conspiracy necessary uh, necessarily, but there's some type of uh, secular forces or, or something like that, some unseen hand that's keeping uh, these genuine studies out and keeping preventing real scientists from being able to speak truth. All you have to do is poll them and ask them what they believe. And, and like I said, 95% of American scientists, third, and, and a third of them, of course, are theists, except the evolutionary model. And, it's, and, and this exists in a climate and in a, in a culture where 83% of the population are God believers. So I don't see how it's possible that if a, a genuine scientist actually had real evidence that could refute evolution and prove the, the Bible, how is this not the perfect climate for them to push that information out? All right. And in, 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 in opinions. All right. Thanks so much for that. 
Stupid Whore Energy, $5 Super Chat says, Mutations are random with respect to fitness. So, for example, the, when it comes to fitness, your best definition of fitness should be total functionality. And I'll use one, one example from, uh, from Lenski's long-term bacterial experiment. So, there has been an increase in fitness in a very narrow sense, okay, because there's been some adaptations observed. But overall, these bacterial populations, they've shrunk in genome size. They're losing genes short-term. It's long-term degeneration. So, overall, there's been a loss of genetic complexity, genetic information, kind of like the analogy I used with tearing down the interior wall. So oftentimes, yeah, there's an increase in fitness, but in a narrow sense. The best definition, as I've stated, is total functionality. When you look at the total functionality, that's where you see this problem that the evolutionists need to address, which is the problem of net gain versus net loss. Because Lenski's experiment himself, he's revealed that beneficial mutations that are truly beneficial only come about roughly one every million mutations, with all the other ones being, for the most part effectively neutral so just slightly deleterious to the organism kind of like a single spelling mistake in a book the size of an encyclopedia one single spelling mistake is not going to be incredibly degrading to the book and the message but the accumulation of them over time especially if selection is not removing them that's what degrades the book and degrades the message so uh, stupid whore energy she's putting my kids through college because she gives the best super chats on my channel my host debates but her problem is she's right mutations are random but her problem is has to do with her definition of fitness uh go ahead all right thanks so much uh, oh yeah can i just say something yeah. uh, i i'd recommend your viewers to just google search uh zero force evolutionary law just a regular google search or being searched or something like that and you'll see that, yes, uh, mutations uh, do accumulate, uh, but that only leads to the more complexity in this gene and more uh, vari uh, variability, uh, which is a good thing. So that means when circumstances do change, some portion of the population will have the genes uh, that they can then use to actually uh, help them survive in changing conditions. So while one portion of the species may die off because of this variability, this increase in complexity that happens because of these mutations, uh, they actually uh, aid in fitness. So like I said, go just Google search uh, zero force uh, evolutionary law. All right. Since the uh, question was for SFT, you got anything to add to that? Yeah, re um, really quick. So the problem is. The more functional the genome, the more deleterious these mutations are. So the um, theory of neutral ev evolution that these mutations build up, they're neutral, and then they're called upon eventually for evolutionary advancement and evolutionary change. This has been overturned. And this is why Kimura himself, famous population geneticist, he made the distinction between effectively neutral and strictly neutral. And the evidence suggests that strictly neutral mutations that have no effect at all on fitness in the genome are so rare that we might as well just ignore them because all you're getting is reduction and slightly deleterious mutations. And the thing is, natural selection can only see the most beneficial mutations that have a significant impact. Let's see antibiotic resistance, for example, sickle cell anemia. Yeah, you know, it, it may emphasize those types of mutations and it may get rid of the worst detrimental mutations that are going to kill the organism, say a mutation in the mitochondrial DNA. But it's those effectively neutral ones that build up slowly and degrade the 
organism. I don't think anybody would say that humans are getting better. Clearly, we are devolving. We're accumulating more and more genetic mutations and genetic-related diseases every single year. So that's the problem that the evolutionists have to deal with. And famous population geneticists agree that man is presently degenerating. We need a type of mechanism to rid the population of these effectively neutral mutations. So uh, thank you. Thanks so much. We had a super chat from Ian Chin. says, I'm an atheist, but I'm rooting for you, SFT. Wow. <laughs> Ian Shad, he's, uh, he's, he's always on the channel. We love him. He's, he's an atheist, but guess what? There's, there's no reason why we can't get along just because we have disagreements, just like Ricky here. He's a great guy. We had a great discussion. So thank you, Ian. We appreciate the super chat. Well, don't get your – yeah, well, don't get comfortable yet because the next oh. super chat, $10 super chat from Stupid Horror Energy again says <laughs> – Adding up all of the parts of the genome that are now thought to have function, it comes up with 8%. With the remaining 92% is probably junk. Things like obvious broken genes, dead transposons, most, uh, most introns, etc., um, what I love about Stupid Whore Energy is, is she is highly informed, appears to be highly educated. Um, I've had two-hour discussions with uh, serious students of evolution as well as PhD biologists on this issue of junk DNA because it's true. If the vast majority of our genome is functional, as uh, ENCODE would suggest, evolution is, is wrong. I mean, Grar said it himself. If ENCODE is right, evolution is wrong. So they have to, just like... Um, SWE here said they have to suggest and hold to their position that the majority of our genome is nothing more than evolutionary leftovers. You heard her, you know, the uh, ancient viral infections like ERVs, pseudogenes, genomic fossils. And she's getting that from a paper from Grar, which I showed in the discussion, uh, Ricky might remember, called an upper limit on the functional fraction of the human genome. I believe there's been an, an additional paper um, that came out by Grar, I believe in 2019. I'll have to look that one up. I don't have it handy. But here's the thing. They, they admit, okay, someone like Dan Grar admits that because of mutation accumulation, 100 new mutations per person per individual in the nuclear genome, for example. This means that the majority of our genome cannot exceed, he says, 15% because they aren't questioning the bigger ape-to-man evolutionary story. Clearly, there are shelf lives on genomes because of mutation accumulation. We can sit back as creationists and say, okay, the reason we're still here, even though mutations are accumulating, Okay, is because we're not as old as the evolutionists say. But people like Dan Grar and Stupid Whore Energy, they can't question that basic uh, paradigm and their basic assumptions. So you can read those papers and you can see assumption after assumption after assumption. If they were to just agree, okay, you know, human beings are obviously not that long. We see stasis in the fossil record, so therefore those organisms that appear in the fossil record that the uniformitarians say are, you know, 500 million years old or something, clearly the old age should be what's being questioned. So um, good super chat from SWE. All right. Uh, Mike Billers says, thanks for your $2 super chat, says, when is Jensen's predictions going to be tested? So good question. So uh, he's got a, a, a series right now. He's just put out a, a couple recent papers. If he would have watched my debate with RJ Downard, he would have seen that Dr. Jensen has uh, released 
some peer-reviewed papers regarding the Y chromosome and the history of civilization. He's detecting signatures in the Y chromosome because if the Y chromosome really does only go back 4,500 years, as the evidence seems to suggest, the Y chromosome mutates fast. We can see this in high-quality DNA sequences. That means we should be able to detect historical events in our genetics. And he's doing just that. He actually also has a 25 part series that you can see. Yeah, he's made predictions on the Khoisan peoples, okay, on their mutation rate. He's saying, I predict that their mutation, they will change, you know, this many times per generations, for example. That's how confident he is that we have a germ cell line mutation rate in the mitochondrial DNA today. That one has yet to be confirmed because, well, we need their DNA, we need their blood samples, and we'll see if his prediction uh, comes back true. So you can't expect, I mean, you got to get their blood and, and do that prediction. So they like to scoff at that one. But in due time, we'll find out if it's true or false. All right. Thanks so much for that. Our next Super Chat, $5, comes from Ricky Dicky Ding Dong. It says, <laughs> says, I think it would be logical and honest to say that life came to be through natural processes instead of magical worlds spoken by an invisible God. Thanks so much for that. I'm not sure if any, that's more of a statement. Um, well, who do we have next? Let's see. Oh, it's Stupid Whore Energy. $5 Super Chat. Thanks so much. Says, are you aware that others who attempted to replicate Parsons' results with pedigree data were unable to do so and came up with a date of 150,000 years. Um, so Stupid Horror Energy always makes the Q&As fun. I think the last debate I had here with Team Skeptic, we had like a 20-minute debate back and forth through Super Chat on Chromosome 2 Fusion. So I like her input. Um, when it comes to the pedigree-based studies, for example, um, like I said earlier, the FBI has adopted the Parsons rate, but there's been a number, a large number, and I can uh, post those afterwards, of pedigree-based studies that still corroborate the Parsons date as well. Yeah, there's been a few for a number of reasons that have gone back even further than that, but the majority of pedigree-based studies only take back mitochondrial use 6,000 years. That's why they say it over and over again. I was just watching some lectures from Yale the other day on evolution, and I'm reading a book by Bernard Wood, famous paleo expert, where they agree over and over again, and they emphasize that they need to calibrate the dates that they get from the empirical method with the fossil record. So they're using the phylogeny method when, in fact, the major, major um, number of pedigree-based studies do confirm a, a young date. Because I was debating Dr. Dan Stern Cardinal, and he agreed mitochondrial DNA mutates fast. And there's only a few differences separating us from the mitochondrial Eve sequence. Um, I have a paper where they pretty much identified Eve sequence. And therefore, if you have a fast mutation rate, there's only a few differences separating us from the Eve sequence. That limits the age of our mitochondrial DNA most recent common ancestor. So uh, I'm getting a little winded. So that's all I got to say on that one. All right. Thanks so much. Yeah, um, we've, we're going to try and get through these last ones because we, we do have a, a, a few questions here. So... We'll try and get them as quick as possible. Leophilia says, Converse, can we please get back on to specifically human origins? I think that he's having a hard time understanding like how the genetic conversation was related to human origins. Um, yeah. Do you, uh, I think, uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, and I don't mean this to be rude. Somebody like, I think Ricky's seen, you know, why we were discussing what we were discussing. I think he understood it. 
someone like Leophilus. I've seen him before. I don't know if a lot of this is just going over his head because when we're talking about mitochondrial DNA and Y chromosome atom and we're discussing things like uh, junk DNA and whether or not the, the majority of our DNA is functional and the created heterozygosity hypothesis, genetics, genetics, I can't emphasize it enough. It's genes and traits that are inherited sperm and egg. Therefore, on the question of human origins and the question of ancestry, the only direct lines of evidence to determine ancestry is in our genetics. And that's why Ricky and I spent a lot of time discussing that uh, those lines of evidence. Now, there are indirect lines of evidence like, like dating methods, the fossil record, for example, which in a second debate we can, we can talk about as well. But genetics is incredibly important. All right. Thanks so much for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'll concur with that. Uh, yeah, we could have uh, just spoken about just human, uh, human uh, origin, but we would have, you, we ultimately would have got to the whole question of, of genes and how, you know, molecular, uh, molecular dating and everything else like that. So any way you look at it, we would have been talking about the same thing. All right. <laughs> Thank you guys for that. Uh, Decepticons Forever 5CA says, sorry, Derek, but SFT didn't arrive to his conclusions via rationality, so it won't change his mind now. <laughs> Just taking shots. <laughs> He's coming at me. Yeah. Yeah, he, he seemed to be a, a, a very intelligent person, very uh, a, a genuine individual, and probably more of these conversations, uh, we may win them over. <laughs> There's a lot of stakes, though, so I don't know. Yeah, you gotta stay optimistic. I appreciate it, Ricky. We've, I, I've had a great time. Time has flown by, so I'm up for a few more of these, actually. All right. We had a $10 super chat from Tasty Thierren, maybe? Um, sorry if I mispronounced that. It says two S T F. Um, how do you explain emergent properties of organisms? Um, standing the four. I'm not uh, emergent organisms. Can you elaborate on that, or can you? Yeah, it just how says do how do you explain organism? emergent properties of organisms? Uh, maybe we'll let um, Tasty. Uh, say something in the chat, like give a specific, um, with specifically what they meant, and then we'll. Um, I'll let you know whenever I, I hear back from them, and we'll um, so that you can answer it more accurately. And so, until then, we'll skip on ahead to Decepticons Forever says, FYI, China and India were up and running during all that Old Testament stuff, but go off though. I'm not sure. I'm good. Yeah, and good points. Uh, Ricky brought that up earlier. So, for example, when we look at the direct lines of evidence, like historical accounts, written records, genetics, these direct lines of evidence and observations only take us back about 4,500 years. You can even just research it yourself. You know, research the oldest written record, for example. And this is all consistent with my model, and my whole point is to look at that which is direct. Now, you can look at indirect lines of evidence, like dating pottery, for example, or other methods of dating methods looking at paint, um, cave paintings and things like this but these are all based on a huge number of assumptions that we well, I just had a debate on my channel actually on on dating methods and we went over in detail those exact assumptions I don't want to take up too much time but it, like I said they, they rely on a lot of assumptions that's why they're indirect and we're focusing here on that which is direct so uh, good points all right thanks so much Mike Bill yeah, yeah go ahead no, I would just say that uh, 
when looking at dating records, when looking at archaeology, you're looking at uh, multiple scientific branches that are all converging on the same framework of an old earth with ancient creatures. And I mean, you actually have, you can accurately date uh, human-made structures that predate uh, the biblical narrative. I mean, I mean, the, the evidence for it, uh, if you want to call it indirect, is direct observational evidence that we see, and it's overwhelming. And we know we can test the accuracy of our dating methods versus other dating methods. I, I, the evidence is just overwhelming. And this is the reason why, uh, despite uh, some of the papers that um, Standing uh, was, uh, was citing, it's not enough to win over uh, the the consensus of evolution, uh-huh. it, 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 and like I said, ironically, some of the papers that are citing is from evolutionists who will be shocked to find out that their studies is actually trying to be used for that purpose. Um, can I have the, the last response there, Converse? Yeah, to my question. Go ahead. Yep. Yeah, so um, real quick, here's the issue. Now, those indirect lines of evidence, for example, if we want to look at C14, well, we know scientists today, they're actually showing that carbon exists in fossils, even strata that the evolutionists date to tens of millions of years old. They'll often say, okay, contamination. Well, I say, give me a break because diamonds, we can look to diamonds, which are the hardest substance on earth. And so its interior should be very resistant to contamination. Therefore, the carbon-14 found in diamonds had to have been there from its beginning. And we see, uh, for example, Dr. John Baumgartner, a geophysicist, he's investigated carbon-14 in a number of samples, and he's detected it in diamonds, he's detected it in coal, fossilized wood, all from locations that evolutionists say are um, tens of millions of years old. Carbon-14, there should be no carbon-14 left in anything older than a couple hundred thousand years, the half-life for example, um, the assumptions, well, we can just test rocks of known age and we've done it. And guess what? They come back as millions and millions of years old. So if we're testing rocks of known age and we're getting inaccurate dates, why should we uh, assume that rocks of unknown age are accurate? That just makes no sense. Plus, we have a number of lines of evidence um, from the Wright Project, radioisotopes in the age of the Earth, that um, have discovered uh, various periods of accelerated nuclear decay. A number of them are fission tracks, radio halos, helium, helium and zircon crystals. How is this even possible? Helium is far too slippery, yet we find it in zircon crystals that evolutionists say are hundreds of millions to billions of years old. So there's just a number of reasons why we should not look to the indirect evidence, and we should look at the direct evidence all right tasty uh clarified their question says specifically in reference to the so-called random inaccurate genetic traits like i don't know if he's talking about you know traits that have popped up through the turning on and off of genes like epigenetics where evolutionists say you know this is new novel information and then oops we realize that it's just epigenetic adaptation or speciation events nobody disagrees with speciation events oftentimes speciation events i should say most of the time are due from shifts in heterozygosity which means more allelic variability to homozygosity which is less allelic variability for example your chihuahuas there's a bottleneck right there you throw those chihuahuas in the wild and they're going to be dead in a day or a week. Your wolves, for example, have much more heterozygosity and allelic variability. So I don't disagree with uh, speciation and emergent uh, organisms, for example, if that's what he means, but it's contradictory to the type of speciation events that pond scum to people evolution would need and require. All right. Thanks so much. We'll, um, we've got like 10 more questions and we're almost at two hours. So 
let's uh, we'll go into like a lightning round here. Uh, Dave Dalla for super chat says, Doctor Jensen owes me money. You got Mark Reed five. <laughs> you got Mark Reed for five A says, even if evolution was disproved, it is not evidence for creationism. Has SFT presented anything that supports creationism? Well, that's why I typically don't debate topics like does God exist or just intelligent design because typically the critics will say, well, what God then? And I kind of agree with that, to be honest with you. That's why I typically um, enjoy debates where it puts me in the position where I have to prove what God and that's why I look to Genesis and God says he created two human beings, Adam and Eve. Uh, the biblical account in Genesis talks about a global flood and the repopulation of everybody from just three founding couples. And therefore, we look to genetics, we make predictions, retrodictions, and all of the predictions, all of the modern scientific data in the Y chromosome, the mitochondrial Eve. Uh, for example, I showed uh, the three major haplogroups in the uh, mitochondrial phylogenetic tree in my opening that confirmed three major haplogroups, L, M, and N, consistent with no was three daughters in law so all the modern scientific data corroborates and confirms a literal interpretation of genesis therefore when people say what god well obviously the christian god all right thanks so much for that we have a uh question from sun actually um smoky saying wanted me to tell everybody that he's going to have an after show on his channel so you can check out smoky saints um after show and if you want to continue this conversation and even be a part of it uh, he he has the link in the chat, but he'll go ahead and repost it. That way, uh, you can get to it there. All right, Sunflower says, Converse, ask Derek, have there not been countless times throughout history where non-experts correctly rejected the expert consensus? Uh, yeah, of course, uh, you know, everybody's going to have a credit, but if you can't justify why uh, you're rejecting it, it, then, it, then it's not science. I could reject anything for any reason. And if it turns out that I'm right, it doesn't make me a prophet. It just means I was a, a curmudgeon who just so happened to get it right. All right. Thanks so much. Sunflower says, uh, Ramanuan was a prodigy who had almost no formal training but made substantial contributions to math, including solutions to problems then considered unsolvable. Was he an expert? Well, he became an expert, even if he's autodidactic. Now, if you're like, once you learn a subject and now you're publishing it in, in journals, you're actually making discoveries, you can get an honorary doctorate. You, you see what I'm saying? They, mm. They'll throw that to you. You are an expert at that point. But if you haven't done that, if you're not publishing in journals, if you're not uh, in a lab, you know, I, I know a, there was a 17 year old kid who, who made like, a, like a, a nuclear device or something like that in his garage, right? But now he's publishing papers and stuff like that. I forget the guy's name. I, I'm going to have to look him up. But the, the point I'm saying is anybody can learn this stuff, sure. But you demonstrate that you're an expert by actually uh, engaging with other experts and letting them uh, look at your conclusions and determine whether, you know, and then together as part of the scientific community, you can reach a consensus and determine whether you're right or wrong. But to just be some crackpot on the side, some, and, I, and I'm not make, saying that anybody is that, but I'm just saying just being somebody mm. on the side just throwing darts uh <laughs> if you're not being published if you're not winning Nobel Prizes, uh, you know you, you should defer to the experts all you right become an expert to defer to them thanks so much spart spart 344 says question for both do you think that 
the sunken cost fallacy plays a factor in scientific and or religious consensus? Well, yeah. certainly you have confirmation bias. Uh, that's why I mentioned cognitive dissonance earlier on. Uh, if you are, if you have a lot of stake in a particular idea, uh, you don't want to be seen as being wrong. So you're going to try to support it as much as you can. Uh, and that's just the way it is. This is the, and this is the reason why in science you have uh, consensus building because everybody has biases, right? But when you air your idea out and you publish it in the journal and you allow other experts who know the same things you know to, to, to look at it and, 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 and basically say, hey, this is where you're wrong, this is where you're right, this is where I agree, and then you can follow up, uh, that actually weeds out bias. And that's the beauty of the, uh, uh, scientific, uh, uh, of the scientific method and peer review and going to uh, uh, the various uh, conferences and stuff like that. These processes weed those types of biases out, and that's why we could, and that's why science makes steady progression. If you assume that you have the right answer from the beginning, which is by definition religion, because it is believed that it came from on high through revelation. If you just assume that you have the right answer from the beginning, you're just defending it uh, with no room uh, to take in new information. It's very likely that you're going to come up with the wrong answer. All right, or you're going to try to defend an undefensible position. SFT, you want to say anything on that, or you, or you want to get to your next question? I guess uh, I'll make it quick since he said he wanted uh, both to answer. I'd agree with Ricky. I mean, confirmation bias exists. This is why typically I like to focus on the gold standard of science, which is, uh, you know, formulate a hypothesis, make testable and falsifiable predictions, because the scientific method itself doesn't lie. So this can help weed out confirmation bias. So I think it's incredibly important when it comes to scientific models and hypotheses, of course, make uh, testable and falsifiable predictions and then we'll test them and see if uh, they come back true or false. All right, awesome. So your next question is from Jay, just the letter J, and says, can you ask SFT if he can explain his credentials and if he has ever formally studied biology in college? Um, good question. Yes, I have studied biology um, quite a bit, actually, in college. And my credentials, um, I think, are irrelevant, but a lot of people do know my credentials. I often speak of them privately, um, but in terms of just in a live debate, I think it's the arguments that are most important. But I, I can say I have studied biology and I've studied a lot of genetics. So, All right. Thanks so much for that. Last question of the night. Kilo Doggy one says, Derek. Do you think that evolution disproves all theological and supernatural explanations? No, no, evolution doesn't do that. There's a number of uh, theistic uh, scientists who accept evolution. So let's make that clear. You don't have to give up God belief in the slightest to accept evolution. That's a different question. A lot of scientists believe that. I mean, yeah, a lot of scientists believe that God got the whole thing started and everything evolved there. I don't necessarily believe that, but it's not a prerequisite that you abandon all godly to accept the evolutionary model of uh, human, you know, of uh, diversity. So that's not necessary. All right. And I, and, and I would just, uh, and, and if I can say this, I, uh, for the people who are adamant against going against evolution, I actually like your passion. I like that you're looking into the subject. 
I would I would recommend that you look at you don't want to uh, be in, uh, tunnel vision only look at one side you want to look at the whole picture and if there's a consensus that is reached there's probably the reason for why that consensus is there but in any event try using that same uh, energy that you use to try to tear down and cross you know and, and check the facts of science which are you which are the previous beliefs that you hold like if you use the same veracity to go against evolution, which is your right, why wouldn't you do the same thing from your pre-existing beliefs? Awesome. Thanks so much for that. And thanks for being here, guys. Standing for Truth, Derek, appreciate it. And the audience as well. Uh, like 200 people stayed with us like the entire time, so it was really cool. A lot of uh, interesting conversations in the live chat. So if you're watching this afterwards, you can check that out. And don't forget, Smokey Sane is going to have the after show if you want to continue this conversation. We're going to go ahead and get off. But if this is your first time here, hit the subscribe button. We have a ton of, of really interesting debates uh, scheduled, including a resurrection debate uh, with Jonathan McClatchy and uh, Matt Dillahunty tomorrow. I believe it's at 3 o'clock p.m. Eastern time. That is going to be pretty epic. So, um, like I say, we have a lot more planned. Um, we're setting them up daily, um, like two weeks out right now. So, anyway, there's a lot to come. And uh, make sure to hit that like and subscribe button. And hit the notification bell to let you know when we are going live. All right. And thanks again to the guys that were involved here. And... As usual, keep sifting the reasonable from the unreasonable. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.